Hey, it's Josh Sibson. And Jake Jabour. From The Meat Improv. The Meat Improv is a comedy podcast where we bring on the best comedians in the world to tell meaty stories from their lives, and then they do improv comedy with us. You don't think we're good at improv? Check out this little snippet from Jake Jabour's real life. Hey, where's all my cats? <laughs> he never knows. The Meat Improv. You can listen to it on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. That's The Meat Improv. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Improv Obsession Podcast. I've got today a guest, Alex Berg. You know him from Convoy, Sentimental Lady, and uh, your cool Tumblr, Bergenbot. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Yes. Uh, so, welcome. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so, I guess I'm just going to probably start at the beginning. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, so I found some stuff on you. Improv... Early in college, Vassar Improv. Yeah. Were you? Were you? Okay. So what? What is that? What was Vassar Improv? Is that, is that short form, long form? What yeah, you? it was when uh, when I got into the I got into the group my freshman year, mm-hmm. and at that point, uh, Vassar Improv was a still uh, deciding whether or not they wanted an actual name that was you right. know more than just literally the most functional name an improv group from a college can have. Uh, after several great puns, we decided to stick with Vassar Improv. All right. Um, but yeah, but I got into that my, my freshman year of college. Um, and yeah, that was short form primarily. Um, we would rehearse twice a week for, I think, like two or three hours at a clip. We didn't have like any faculty oversight or anything like that. It was just a bunch of kids who knew what improv was but didn't like know the deep structure of it at all. Okay. And then uh, when it got to be like my junior year, I want to say, um, we started trying to fuck around with long form. Can I swear? Go for it. Go yeah. For it. Fucking great. Um, so we started trying to fuck around with long form, but even that was like, like one guy in the group had a copy of Truth and Comedy, and, but like didn't really get it. And another guy <laughs> in the group had like been to a UCB show once and had maybe seen a Herald, but didn't uh-huh. know... How to convey that to everybody else. So we had this weird long form we would do that was like three plot lines running together and like a weird like we would do claps to edit because no one had told us how tag-ins work or anything like that. Um, So yeah, it was was cool. It was cool that just everyone liked it so much to still do it even without any clear idea of what we were doing. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, Yeah, Truth truth and Comedy is... uh definitely hard to understand if you haven't kind of been in i i read truth and comedy i think like when i was in 101 yeah and i was it was a lot of just like okay i think i understand what we're talking about but yeah i mean i read it when i was in 101 at io west um it was like a required purchase or something like that and i remember at that time i'd already been i'd been doing improv in college for years and before college for for a long time and like, we had tried long form, and I had seen a bunch of Herald shows by the time I finally got that book. And I remember reading it and being like, this doesn't... And even now, I've gone back and read sections of it. I'm like, it just doesn't... It has nothing in there. Like, there's some great Mike Myers quotes. Yeah. But for as much of a, a Bible as it is, which is crazy, and I don't, you know, I don't mean to 
fucking burn the sacred text or anything like that. No, but it's it. just like the I found it phenomenally unhelpful. You yeah, know? like interesting, definitely interesting, but just not not helpful in any way. Yeah, the the I feel like the problem with discussing improv in in any form, or especially in writing, is like uh, it's very it's very abstract. It's all it's yeah. all and even. And even, even from a level of, like, abstraction of, like, you can just go, like, okay, if you're in this type of, like, it's even hard to just go, like, if you're in this type of situation to really, you have to be, like, a step removed from that. You're just, like, comedy is yeah. good. Like, do comedy. Like it's, it's a little bit like trying to explain to somebody who's never done, you know, psychedelics or, or something like that, like, what what, like, mushrooms or LSD feel like. You know, like, you can talk about it. You can explain it to someone. You can... You can describe it to the best of your ability, but until someone actually does it or sees it, there's really just nothing you can say. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's and so it is weird to read about it. I, you know, it's and it's weird for me because I'm I'm such a analytic like oh let's let's figure it out from every angle guy that I I would think I would love the the text the textual uh, derivations of it, but but yeah. yeah, truth and comedy didn't do much for me. Mm. What I what I took from that real quick was just uh, I need to do psychedelics or something so I can understand it. In my improv, because I feel like a lot, of, <laughs> yeah. feel like a lot of times I've been like, "Oh, you're on a certain type of drug," and I'm like, "Don't know what that is. Yeah. Just gonna act weird." Here's my thing about like drugs and improv scenes is like so. And this just came up in a class of mine the other day, like in a four one I'm teaching right now, and uh, you know, people be like, "Oh, I, I didn't want to just be the drunk guy," and it's like, here's the thing, man, is like I know so many people who drink but aren't drunks, you know, and like I know so many people who smoke pot but aren't stoners, yeah. like. There's no reason in an improv scene that a drug should just be like, well, everything's out the window. It's like, it's still that person, yeah. just probably a more exacerbated version thereof. I like that. Yeah, right? Um, all right, so you, uh, and so you did the Vassar thing. You guys came out to L.A., you and, was it? Uh, myself, Fernie, and Todd, yeah. Okay. Todd, Todd graduated Todd. the year before us. Me Todd and Fernie moved out yeah. together. Okay, and then uh, and then how did, uh, you started at I.O., you started training at I.O., mm-hmm. right? How did, uh, how did you find that? Why did you decide on that? Any... Uh, when, uh, I moved out here, Todd and another guy from our improv troupe, uh, who was living out here at the time had both, I think that at that point they were both in IO's 401 level. Um, and they had, probably still do have a six level program. Um, it's seven now Yeah, is the seventh level cage matches and stuff. I don't know. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, so like a friend of ours had already been there and, uh, you know, uh, like you know, we had found an apartment based on its proximity to IO so we could walk there and stuff, yeah. you know. And so we moved out and started taking classes, I think, a week later. And within uh, a month had already put up a sketch show um, on the main stage there that we had been planning to do since before we got out to L.A. So it really was just like a sort of we arrived already knowing that we were going to go to IO and then just really dug into it as much as we could. That's cool. Um, and then I guess like uh – you guys sort of like rose through doing cage matches, and you did you start yeah. like I mean that was you guys are doing shows or whatever you learn an improv. I mean, did you go all the way through the IO program? Did you? Yeah, we uh, yeah, all three of us uh, are, are IO alumni, you know, and I like the IO program. I got a lot out of it as a performer. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly structured, so it would be a lot would come down to like well. I took eight weeks of class with Craig Kukowski, and Craig Kukowski is fantastic, you know, yeah. like, but it wouldn't be like, oh, I got so much out of that level. It'd be like, I got so much out of, you know, my instructor. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, I think, you know, IO has a very different philosophy on 
performance than UCB. Obviously, UCB's is very oriented around game. Mm-hmm. IO's is much more oriented around uh, relationship and uh, finding like that truthful moment, you know. And uh, I think that certainly when UCB first got out here, that was an element that was missing from their curriculum. I think they've really done a great job in correcting that now. But it was interesting to, uh, after getting out of I.O. and going over to UCB and starting to take class there, just seeing the difference between the people who had taken I.O. previously and the people who had taken no other improv school previously is they just they wouldn't be performers. They wouldn't understand this comedy angle and really know how to hit this pattern in a, in a very specific way. Right. But they weren't able to sell it. And now I think that's no longer the case. Now I think UCB does a really great job of training people not only to have that comedy mind but also to have that performance um, acumen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love, I just, I just love hearing that, uh, fairly regularly, like that UCB is now focusing on a new thing in the curriculum. Like after I finished, you know, less than a year ago now. And, uh, and then, yeah, I keep on hearing like, oh, now we're focusing on like acting and like state. There's a little thing on that. And yeah. There's, you know, that's great. Cause you got to keep on, it's like a, it's a live thing. You got to keep on revising the. Yeah. I had curriculum. the, um, I had the pleasure of, uh, and I, I that sounds, it's going to sound sarcastic when I say what I'm about to do, but I'm such a nerd for this stuff that yeah. this actually was a great pleasure for me. <laughs> um, but over, uh, Del Close Marathon weekend last year in New York, I got to sit in on the, um, and contribute to the curriculum revamp for 2012. And what's really great is that, like, you know, it's seven improv nerds in a room going, like, you know, really racking their brains saying, like, how can we make this easier for students? How can we make this more effective for students? You know, and it's just, it's so, it's so great to be able to sit back and be like, okay, here's this one tiny facet of this thing we're trying to teach people. How can we craft an exercise just to work that muscle? And then how can we work that into the the broader scheme of say a Herald or a mono scene, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever form you want to work on. That's great. Who who else was in there? Like Wenger. And- uh, Wenger was in there. Uh, a bunch of New York people. Some of whose some of whose names I definitely know, and some of whose I'm shaky on. So I'm going to avoid right. mentioning any of them just in case I mess it up. Yeah. Uh, and then from LA was uh, myself, uh, Alex Fernie, and Neil Campbell. Okay. Okay. Cool. That's really cool. Um, I, this is just a rumor, anyway. Uh, I heard that there were there's UCB is doing like a book or something like that. Is yeah. That- is that true? Uh, and are you doing some? Are you a part of that in any way? I'm not really officially involved with it. I got a chance to read the the manuscript for it last February, I think, and uh, contribute my notes on it. Um, and it's great. You know, I know I'm going to sound hypocritical because I just said like truth and comedy didn't do anything for me, but the, the truth and comedy felt like it was a weird cross between a memoir or sort of like a nostalgic reminiscence of what that scene was in, yeah. in Chicago or whatever. And also, by the way, here's how you do a Herald. Yeah. Um, whereas the UCB textbook is a is a textbook. It's flat out, this is what a Herald is. No bullshit, no, you know, like cute quotes from any of the UCB4 or anything like that. Like, yeah. here are exercises you can use to target it. Here's critical thinking questions. Like, And then going through with these really great analyses, um, just breaking things down and showing how scenes work and I, I don't know when it's when it's going to come out, but it's really great, and I got a lot out of it as a you know relatively not super seasoned but relatively seasoned performer. There yeah. were still things in there that I read and was able to go like, oh right, God, that's such an easy way to say it. And yeah. I hope that when it comes out, people have the same reaction to it. Good, that's awesome. Yeah, I read. I was looking. I had a I have a second city, the second city almanac of improvisation, and I got that. Oh, cool. A little bit later, uh, 
and my improv career. And I started reading that one, and that's that's the exact same thing. Just like a lot of quotes, and like, wasn't it great at Second City? Yeah, and, and like, it's like, here's the thing: is <laughs> yeah, I bet it was great. But you know, the the thing that I think that any LA improviser has to deal with that's kind of annoying is like all the old guard at whatever theater you're at talking about how great the scene was back in the day. Yeah. You know, like I, I remember at IO, it was all. Like, oh, well, back in Chicago, this happened, and -and so-and-so did this, and this team existed, and no one here in L.A. could ever imagine the heights of artistry we achieved there. And I think it's to a lesser extent uh, at UCBLA, but there is still a lot of, like, well, back in New York, this crazy thing happened, and, you know, you had to be in New York to really get it. Right. And my thing is, like, I don't know, man, L.A.'s pretty great. L.A.'s pretty weird, you know? Like, and I think that, uh, I think that those books that sort of reinforce this idea that there was a promised land and anything off of that is like this sort of tawdry second rate improv city. I think it's just complete fucking bullshit. Yeah. It's a, it's a little obnoxious. Although I, I even heard, uh, even, I even heard people talk of people from who were at the New York originally, like the New York scene was really strong in improv. And I actually, I went for like no time at all. And I was like, I feel like we're about on the same level. Like, I don't feel like, yeah. LA is a weak improv city. In no, LA. I don't think it is at all. And, you know, I think just looking at UCB specifically, I think that probably three or four years ago, it it's very much the case that UCB just had a smaller presence in LA. You yeah. know, we didn't have all these great indie nights like Crash Bar and 101 popping up all over the place. And, you know, just the, the improv landscape was much more... Um, used to be much more uh, constrained than it is now. And now I think it's really blossomed, especially in the past like two or three years. Yeah. I feel like Herald Night's a lot stronger now. I feel like the Indie Nights are in general pretty strong. Um, you know, and I feel like the classes I teach are pretty strong and Herald Auditions are more competitive, you know. And yeah. to compare that to the New York scene, you know, I think that they certainly have a lot of strong players. And I'm not trying to say anything negative about the New York scene at all, but... Uh, you know, certainly most of the old guard has come out here. There's been kind of an exodus over the past couple of years, yeah. you know, where everyone who's really done a really good job in New York has decided for some reason or another to come out to L.A. Right. And, uh, you know, while I think that there's still certainly a lot of people who I know and are good friends with in New York who are great players, they've lost some of their veterans, you know. And they have, they're building new veterans who are going to be great, and they still have a lot of veterans there who are great. Yeah. But there's just been this sort of preferential slide over to the west coast which yeah. i, I kind of like yeah that's uh yeah it's definitely and like they even, we even have shows going up at ucb la that were just like this was a new york team and now we're here yeah. like ev- literally everybody's here uh and it's and now like my my thought on it and i'm sure, every, I'm sure other people have had that thought is like how the, how the hell are we going to get new people in here you got them coming from new york chicago yeah. everywhere and just like i mean that was a big concern for us um going through herald auditions uh last weekend was you know, on the one hand, it's absolutely a meritocracy, you know, and yeah, everyone true. on the Herald Committee very firmly believes that the most talented people get through. There are, you know, people on the Herald Committee who, you know, maybe do not like, you know, say socially, you know, like certain people who have had great auditions or whatever. And the fact that it's committee means you have to drop those that personal bullshit aside and be right. like, well, but they would do a really great job representing the training program of the theater. We have to put them on stage. Um, you know, and there are all these New York people coming out and it's this thing of like, well, you know, if, if all things are equal, like, you know, do we give slots to say like a veteran New York performer or do we give them to a, an up and coming LA improviser? And, you know, I think that we're more interested in getting people who have not had the chance to be a house performer to theater yet up on that stage without, without snubbing New York. Uh, There are, there are a couple of New York performers who got put on to 
uh, existing teams this past go around. Yeah. But I think all things being equal, we have to we owe a responsibility to the students who've taken the time and spent the money to go through the program to give them a chance to hone their skills on that stage. Wow, I like that. Um, somebody actually uh, asked a question on, online, and it was an anonymous person. Okay. Uh, so they said they asked, uh, "What do you think of Herald auditions, and what do you think of the new teams now?" My guess is since they were anonymous and then they asked this question, either they <laughs> they're an auditioner. Did, they did a bad audition or a great audition. They're on the team. They just want to know, like, hey, maybe right. you got any compliments for me? I, I think I can say without reservation that I think Harold Knight now is stronger than it's been since I've been at the theater. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know I, I get that there's a lot of people. There's more people now who are pissed at Harold Knight than there ever used to be because there's more people now who audition for Harold Knight than there yeah. ever used to be. You know, in this past go-round, I think we had... Counting people who'd previously been on teams, uh, either in L.A. or New York, and new auditioners, uh, I think we had something in the, in the realm of 375, 380 people audition. And out of those people, I think 18 got on teams, which works out to about 5%. Yeah. Um, you know, and that wasn't when I auditioned. I got asked to audition a teacher invite out of my 201 class. You know, like that doesn't happen anymore. There's yeah. no room for that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Um, and I think that in general, ooh, something just happened to my ears and I got dizzy and everything got fuzzy. Okay. Oh. <laughs> hey, look, if I have a heart attack or an aneurysm or something during the uh, podcast, just roll with it and okay. broadcast it all. That, yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think that the past year especially, and obviously the new, the new batch of Herald teams hasn't had a chance to do anything yet, but I think that the past, the past year of Herald Night was super strong. I think that it used to be the case in, in previous years where you would go to Herald Night, you would watch four shows, and every week there would be at least one show that was just like a complete clunker. There would be shows that were great and shows that were fine, but there would always be at least once a week there would be that one terrible show. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes that would be one team that was inconsistent, and sometimes that would be you know just uh, you know the the vagaries of improvisation that uh, a good team would do a bad show. Right. There's always one bad show. And this past year I've watched, you know, I, I watch Harold Knight almost every week. It's my default. And I think if there's one show like that a month now, that's a lot. Yeah. And I'm very critical of the shows I watch. And so I, you know, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I think you have teams now like Bangarang and Kid Griff who even on their off days still put out like, really good shows, you know, and Great War and John Velvet, who maybe took a little bit longer to find their feet, but now are absolutely as competitive as anyone else with yeah. those teams. And, you know, and I think it's just a really solid, there's one team I'm forgetting, and they're going to get so pissed. The Racket. The Racket. Oh, The Racket is, is no more. And even The Racket, who didn't have super consistent shows, had shows that were fantastic and right. had scenes that were fantastic. Right. Um, you know, it just so happens that the theater's more competitive now than it used to be, and you know, you got to make new room somewhere and have yeah. it be the racket this time around. Well, I love, uh, I love the like, la like last year, yeah, the the Herald teams. I just, I spent a lot of time just going like these guys. Arts are and athletics. That's why I forgot. Oh, arts I and love, athletics. I love arts and athletics. I'm such They're a great. fan of arts and athletics. They're great, and that, but like that, I think is what's really great about, the, the, I guess, the last Herald lineup and hopefully the next one too is they're all. They're all pretty different teams, too. You can't compare a Kid Griff show in a lot of ways to an arts and athletics show to a Bangarang show. Yeah. They do they – do, they're all doing Heralds, but they're doing such a – such a – their version of a Herald, you know? Yeah. I, I, li I love that, just that it can be – that's the cool thing about improv in a lot of ways is it just can be a lot of different stuff, and they 
that really delivered like that. Yeah, you know, and I think that might be uh, part of, you know, I feel like there's been a shift in focus on the Herald Committee's part when creating teams. To, you know, it used to be uh, very functional, like, well, we need someone who's a driver, we need, you know, two or three support players, we need a wild card, we need someone who can fill out, you know, it was like building like a and d adventuring party, you know, sure. like, you need your wizard, you need your, you know, your defender, you know, like all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I, I could get into more on the D&D analogy, but it's, it's probably going to leave most people behind. Yeah, including me. But I mean, <laughs> if you have a party full of defenders, you're going to be stuck if you have ranged attackers, that's all I'm saying. This is but true. um. But now I think there's more of a focus on chemistry and what people have, you know, has the Herald Committee been seeing at the indie shows who have, you know, formed their own teams and that sort of stuff. Who do they choose naturally to work with? Who do they already have that chemistry with? Mm -hmm. And I think that in focusing on on that a little bit more, it has created these teams that get along in a way that that is very specific to that team. And I think that creates comedy that's very specific to that team because it's comedy that's unique to that group of friends, you yeah. know, and that's the cheesiest fucking thing I could possibly say. But I think, I think in a very real sense, there's, there's some truth to that. Um, so, uh, so you get you're, you say you just got back from the coaching thing. Uh, I don't know what, how much you guys have worked on it, but for a new Herald team comes along, I mean, what are your, what's your approach or you're getting into that? Like, how do you, I generally want to make them all super afraid of getting cut. Uh-huh. So that they, uh, so that they don't slack off. No, no, no. That's that's not true at all. Um, <laughs> I was just, I was mildly terrified of you for a second. I'm like, Jesus. I, yeah, the first day I make them all stand in a line blindfolded, and then I march back and forth past them while swearing at them and pointing out their flaws. Um, no, I mean for me, uh, you know, uh, my new team this time around has the starter name Linseed Chandelier. Um, I don't know what their real name will wind up being, but you know, for me, the things I really try to focus on at the top of a new team are, um, just, uh, a team building, I guess, you know, like just stupid stuff. Like, you know, how can we use stretch and share or monologue exercises so that these people who might not have any prior friendship or knowledge of one another can at least find out some more stuff about one another and be like, Oh fuck, you told a monologue about Ohio. I'm from Ohio. You know, yeah. like even just little connections like that go such a long way towards building the kind of trust and familiarity that you need in order to be a really fluid, really capable Herald team. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's always my primary focus. And then after that, it's like, let us make sure that before we start working on any of the flashy parts of the Herald, that we can just play a fucking game, you know, like yeah. let's just drill the game like until it is in our bones and we can do that without thinking then we can start doing the fun stuff and really mucking around with the form. Do you, do you feel like, I mean, yeah, do you do you run into a lot of that? I mean, teaching, I guess, and even coaching, do you find there are, I guess, a, a significant problem with game? Like, is that, like, a, a thing that's still... You know, it's not that I see a significant problem with game. It's that there are some people whose brains are hardwired to pick up on pattern and that kind of regularity that makes for really strong gameplay very naturally... And there's other people whose brains are wired such that they get more they're, – they're rewarded more by, say, following, like, a little bit of a tangent or something like that, you know? And, like, maybe having, like, a little bit of a looser game, but that adds kind of a freeness and a chaos to the scene that can be really beneficial. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it's not that I see people having a hard time with game. It's a question of, well, how can we meet in the middle? How can we loosen up those people who are super pattern-oriented and won't ever make a move off game because those scenes will get old real fast yeah. and you'll burn, burn them out in a minute and a half? And how can we take the people who are a little bit better at injecting that chaos and make it so that 
that chaos doesn't just throw the entire scene off. How can we work together to have it be like, okay, well, we'll make the audience think we threw the scene off and then come back to game from a new angle, you know? Like, getting those two halves to work together is, is important, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very I'm partial to letting uh, myself be chaotic and the team shepherd me back in the game. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they all hate me for it, I'm sure. Uh, it's fun. You need some of that. Yeah, it's just like keep keep everybody guessing. Yeah. Um. So I guess uh, I want to get refocus a little bit on convoy. So you guys kind of you guys had like a, a little rise, and I, I guess I want to just talk about that. Maybe hear about it from your perspective because sure. I've only heard secondhand accounts, and I wasn't really around when it. You probably read about it in the tabloids and on TMZ.com. All of that exactly. So oh, we started TMZ.com. <laughs> TMZ started as a convoy fan blog. I can't um, yeah, you guys, you did, you did the cage match run. Everybody knows it used to be for like 44 or something. Yeah. Weeks. I mean, was that, you guys have been doing shows before that though. I mean, what was, yeah. Uh, tell, tell me about history. I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, but, um, Convoy started up in February of 05. Um, and we started doing the student cage match and then the, and then the main stage cage match at IO. And that, uh, and we, I think we went like 20 weeks or something like that on the main stage at IO and then retired because at the time 20 was the record and, you know, we weren't, we, we weren't, you know, like uh, super interested in continuing to do the cage match. And also we had been uh, invited by IO Theater to start doing just regular main stage shows. Nice. Yeah. And so for uh, a while we had an hour, I think we had like nine o'clock on Thursdays or something like that, that we would split with, um, the mission improbable guys who now run West side eclectic, um, improv theater. Um, and eventually we got moved to Saturday nights and paired up with, uh, Dr. God, which was, I think, or no, no God squad. Sorry. Dr. God was another cage match team that we were friends with, but, um, with God squad, which is a team that had like Arden Mirren and Chris Tallman and, Dana Powell and Rob Ryan and all these really talented people on it. Um, and in the midst of all that, uh, that was, you know, so that all started before UCB came out to town. And then, you know, in 2006, UCB showed up and we started taking classes and Fernie and I got put on Sentimental Lady. And we, you know, at the time, Seth Morris was the AD of the theater and we brought him a, a DVD that had like three taped convoy shows on it. We we're like, hey, we'd really love to start doing shows here. Yeah. And he, he didn't even take the packet from us. Like we had like a whole like envelope and stuff. He didn't even take the packet, which I love. He was so honest. He was just like, honestly, man, there's instructors here who are struggling to find stage time to put shows up now. You know, your best shot is to do the cage match. Yeah. And, uh, so we signed up for the cage match and at the time, um, last day of school had been winning it. And I think they were on like 11 or 12 wins, uh, when we, uh, when we came in and we already knew. We already knew a bunch of those guys somehow. Like, we, we were already friends with Drew. I can't remember how that happened. But, like, you know, we had just sort of known all those people and obviously had seen them a lot just on, on stage at UCB. Right. Um, and, yeah, we beat them in the cage match. And then, you know, we started winning. And it wasn't until around, you know, we were doing the cage match at I.O. It was a lot of, fuck, let's badger this group of friends this week so we can badger the other group of friends next week yeah. and get people to come out and support us. Um and it was the same way at uh, UCB, too, for the first couple of weeks. And then, like, week, like, 14 or 15, uh, we I remember so clearly showing up to the show, and we were going up against Josh Covitt and Jay Hathaway. 
and I can't remember their team name, but they both had guitars and did like a really funny show. Yeah. And at the top of the show, when Will McLaughlin was introducing it, he asked the audience, like, how many people is this your first time at Cage Match? And, like, the whole crowd applauded. And I remember being backstage and being like, fuck, we didn't recognize any of these people coming in. And it was, like, a big house. Like, the yeah. whole center was, so it was a big house, uh, much bigger than we had been used to. And we assumed that the other guys had, had brought them all. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we were we were just... You know, going straight for defeat. Yeah, uh, and then it turns out that was not true. It turns out that some of the teachers had gotten wind of us and had started telling their students to come out and see us, which was something we had never experienced at um, Improv Olympic. Um, and that the students themselves were telling other students to come and see us. And from that point on, you know, so for the next twenty nine weeks after that, we had full houses for almost every cage match, and it was just the the teachers at the theater being super supportive of us and the student body being super supportive of us. And that kind of support was so new to us. And I think we really responded to it. And, you know, for us, uh, more so than wanting like the, the number of wins, which, you know, after a certain point, we're like, we're just happy to have a weekly show. Yeah. We're just like, fuck, we better do a good job so that we can come back and keep having this weekly show. We never knew when that was, you know, if that was going to continue or not. Right. Um, yeah, and then at 44, we got our asses kicked by Ben Schwartz and Eric Appel, and they very much deserved to win. And, yeah. And Ben came up to us after and apologized because he was just visiting L.A. for the weekend and was going back <laughs> to New York, like, the next day or something like that. And um, But it was it was great. It was kind of a relief to not have to have the, the competitive aspect to deal with anymore. And very shortly thereafter, uh, Drew DeFonso Marks, who was at the time the artistic director of UCBLA, uh gave us the other half of the hour on Thursday nights that we currently share with last day of school. And that was, you know, I think three years ago or something like that. I think that was in like summer of 08. Yeah. Um, and we've been doing that slot ever since. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Like I really, I, I can't, I, to me, that's like the most interesting story of a team ever is cause you guys, you know, basically kicked ass at IO, got some main stage IO time and then, go to UCB and you're like, well, we're good. Like, what? And they just said, no, like even people who, perf- you know, oh, teachers. Oh, f- just a flat refusal. Not even like a, I saw your stuff and it's not right for us. Yeah, just before just like, we even got in the door, no just no way, welcome. there's no room. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but then, and then somehow end up with a half hour weekly, like, I mean, just all through doing good improv consistently. And, uh, I, just, I think that's, that's the most unique story I've ever heard. And it like, and what it comes down to is like, you guys are, now like a like an institution at UCB in a lot of ways like you guys all teach uh every teacher says like you guys need to go see convoy and they're like a good example of improv and uh I mean is that I, I don't know like I feel like it, there should be god there's just like it should like be more should of that like we should sell t-shirts something. or something well, like not that, that. We should sell t-shirts, <laughs> but, like it feels like any other way into it is just like almost cheating like you know like you know, I mean, that's not, and that's not to discredit anybody else, but no, like, no, 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 no. You, you really, like, really, you earned a spot. Uh, I think we got very lucky with timing. You know, uh, like I was saying earlier, that yeah. the theater is so much the the schedule. Of the theater is so much more calcified now than it was back then. Yeah. You know, and even now, the slot, the the slots at the theater, like the Tuesday night slot, the Tuesday night eleven o'clock slot, for instance, which is currently rotating, like you know, veteran teams and stuff like that, yeah. like. Even that is not a slot where, like, you know, some plucky bunch of outsiders can come in and just claim right. that. You know, that's, like, for people who are teachers and want to put together teacher teams. And, yeah. You know, like, that's a slot where, you know, the theater looks at, well, maybe who's on Herald Night now who will move up to be a, a weekend team or a regular house team like that. Like, right. where might they go? 
And I think when we came out, the theater was still growing, and we happened to get very lucky in being able to take the cage match, which was a spot that people would come to but wouldn't sell out all the time, and uh, were able to turn that into like a, a sellout show, and then get doubly lucky that there happened to be this other half of Last Day of School's slot that at the time was rotating, and right. we were able to slide right in there, and and then luckier still beyond that to just have uh, the students support us enough that. We've been selling out shows pretty consistently, and there hasn't really been a lot of cause to look at our numbers and go like, well, who else can we put in there to make this this night fuller? Right. Um, so, I mean, I feel like it is, uh, you know, I don't want to discredit the three of us. The three of us, you know, work pretty hard, but yeah. uh, I think there is a lot of luck just yeah. in, the, in the timing and happenstance of it all that, that led to us being able to, to have that slot. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a big part of anybody's success uh, in anything, but like, yeah, you guys, you guys put out good shows. Um, you, uh, one thing I just want to, I guess, touch on real quick. You guys do uh, a really interesting style where it's, uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, I guess it's sort of hard to explain. Do you have a, a way to explain it? It's, um, real quick or I don't know. I mean, I have ways to explain it to other improv nerds, but, yeah. uh, I mean, I guess it's just, you know, we get a suggestion, we'll have a two person scene going at the top of it, and then something will come up in that scene that merits further exploration, and we'll tag out and go further explore, and, something there will come up that merits further exploration and we'll go explore further and further and further and further. And, uh, that goes on for, you know, 20 some odd minutes, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a really good show. Um, you do, you guys, I think have probably, I feel like the best specifics, uh, in improv. I'll just say that. Uh, how do, I mean, how does that even come? Like what, how I don't understand. Like I, I try to throw out specifics as specific as possible and I can. And I just, I like I've used you said something about like a certain model of a weed whacker. Uh, just oh, ortho. Yeah, yeah, it's an ortho what? two cycle weed whacker. I, that was fucking insane to me that you it just even came out of your mouth or that it was readily available. Like, what's going through your head? Did you just, do you just remember everything? Uh, Are you autistic? Like, I'm probably closer to having some sort of autism or Aspergers than anyone else on the group. But, uh, but you know, I mean, I think for me. You know, I, I think obviously I have broad philosophical agreement on this topic with Fernie and Todd, but I just I don't want to put words in their mouth. But you know, I think for me, it's just it's I think you really have a responsibility to the audience when you're up there doing you know your wacky make 'em ups to make it as real as possible. Yeah. You know, and I think that part of that is you know responding real in an emotional way in a way that's you know believable within the context of the scene. Yeah. I think part of that is not forgetting to do space work so that the physicality of the scene comes alive a little bit more and. Same thing goes with characters, just, you know, inhabiting different physical spaces. And, you know, I think another part of that is just like, you know, you can't, you just, the the more specifically you can label something, the clearer an image that pops up in somebody's head. So like, you know, if I was just to say weed whacker, that scene would go on totally fine. And I don't think anyone in the audience would stand up and be like, what what kind was it? You know, but the second I say ortho weed whacker, there's a weird thing that happens where people go like... (laughs) That is a brand of weed whacker, you know, yeah. like, and it just, it, it adds, it adds something that they didn't realize they knew into the show and it gives them the ability to flesh out the reality of that scene a little bit more. And in so doing, I think draws them in a little bit more, yeah. you know, 
And for the audience members who don't know what Northa Weed Whacker is, I don't think that takes anything away because it's no. not like the jokes are specifically about that brand of Weed Whacker. You know, right. like, I can name that. I couldn't tell you what the fucking difference was between, you know, that and say a Husqvarna Weed Whacker or something like that. <laughs> also, I was a groundskeeper for like a long time. And so I just, I, you know, okay. that was. That's all I wanted to know. Is oh, the groundskeeper thing? <laughs> okay, great. Just cut out the previous right, so 12 we, minutes we of me rambling. You, uh, I, I, I think you told me a while ago, and I don't know if this is 100% correct, but do you guys, you guys give each other notes after the show? Is that what I hear? Yeah, kind of. I mean, we, you know, the three of us all went to college together, and our college improv troupe, like I said, was self-run, you know, mm-hmm. so we were already sort of in the mode of, like, when we got out here, being like, well, let's just discuss. But yeah, we've never had, we've never had a coach, um, like, not even for, for one session. Um, and I think that, you know, all of us are uh, really pretentious improv snobs, you know, like I, I think even out of our own work, probably, you know, two thirds of our shows, we walk off stage going like, eh, we kind of missed it. Or, yeah. you know, like, oh, we, we didn't really hit it tonight. And we don't like that. We would rather have a higher hit ratio. And the only way to do that is to be really honest with ourselves about why certain shows and scenes didn't work. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily us sitting around being like, well, Fernie, let me tell you what line you messed up on or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but it is the three of us sitting around going like, this scene didn't work because we failed to establish the relationship between these two people. This yeah. scene didn't work because we were talking about what happens in the future, you know? Yeah. And so I think through liberal use of the pronoun we, we're able to sort of pick the show apart without ever having it get catty or accusatory or anything like that. You know, everyone in the group is really... Like, more often than not, rather than someone else giving, you know, someone a note, it'll be someone being like, I messed up here. This is what I did, yeah. you know? And I think that we, we just got kind of lucky in that, you know, none, none of us have enough real, like, pride or ego to, to try to pretend that we never fuck up or anything like right. that. And, you know, just calling out those fuck-ups is sort of what drives the, the progress of the group forward. I mean, that's cool. Does, I mean, does it does it ever, I mean, has it ever gotten a little, like... All right, man. I didn't do that. Like you're a dick. Anything? Never. You know, there've definitely been times when I've where I've had those feelings, but it's also, you know, it's also relative that I can't, I can't ever like, you know, address that with conviction because you're too close to it. You know, it's the exact reason that you, you know you tell groups that they need a coach is because when you're in the scene, you can't really, like, yeah, okay, so maybe I'm in a scene and I feel like the other person's not giving me what I'm looking for, but also I should be looking for what they're giving me, not looking for what I'm looking for and then comparing what they're giving me to that, you right. know? And so that's on me. That's not on them. Even if, let, let's say, like, they were to throw me something that's complete, you know, utter gibberish, like, yeah. like you know, Cleverbot does, you know, like, I shouldn't be approaching it with the mindset of, hey, man, what you threw me was not good enough. I should be approaching it with the mindset of, how do I take whatever is thrown at me and make it the best? Yeah. You know? And so those kinds of moments where you get sort of um, annoyed at, you know, the other people in the group or whatever like that, you have to just step back and be like, well, this is like a collaborative thing, you know? And if I'm sitting here pointing fingers of blame saying you did this wrong or you did that wrong, then I'm forgetting that like, well, maybe I didn't respond to it right is a right. corollary to that argument. Um, I like that. That's smart. Uh, uh, real quick, uh, I got a question from Mark David Christensen who asked, sure. <laughs> what was your, hi uh, Dave, <laughs> he said hi, that's good. Uh, what was your biggest challenge, uh, I guess, come learning as an improviser coming up and then, uh, and then how do you like, address it and o- actively overcome it now? Um, 
I mean, were you, you were always perfect or? Yeah, I was born, I was born yes anding. My first words were yes and. The second I slid out of my mother's baby hole. Um, uh, that's a, that's a very good question. I, well, I mean, I could just talk about my current learning process cause I don't feel like I'm done yet. Sure. Um, but I mean, I just have a real hard time, you know, everything is so much easier in hindsight than it is in the moment. And I think it's really easy, even within a scene, not not even like once the scene's done, but even within a scene, to constantly be going back and saying like, fuck, you know, like I did this thing wrong, I did that thing wrong, and, and get in a mode of course correcting or trying to fix a problem. And I think it, it took me a long time, and I'm still working on really getting to a point where you're so in the moment that... That you forget that that kind of criticism is even an option and you just challenge yourself to engage the scene so fully that you don't have room for any of that other stuff. And, and I know that uh, you and I have talked a little bit about uh, the concept of flow, which is a uh, psychological state proposed by a uh, Russian psychologist named uh, Szenstik Mihalyi, uh, um, which is basically the, the concept of flow is that you know, at certain times when your ability is matched um, but not exceeded by uh, the level of challenge of the current situation, you enter this kind of state where it's like it takes all of your brain just to keep up with everything that's around you and you're able to do more than you would be, say, if you were in a situation where the challenge was not equal to your level of ability and you'd get bored yeah. or the challenge was much greater than your level of ability and you'd get frustrated. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's all about how can I uh, just engage that scene more to produce a state of flow yeah. and in less to let look at it less as like, this is a frustrating thing and less as, well, this is too simple. It's a boring thing. How can I just accept it for what it is and really just try to fucking make the most out of it, I guess. Well, uh, so the, the I got, uh, to decide if I want to get really weird and heady about this. Get so weird and heady, thing. man. Okay, yeah. so the flow. Okay, so the flow thing you said. You're basically, it's being being engaged to the, the basically your highest level, and it requires your highest attention. That's probably produces the best results. Sure. If you get so, over challenged, uh, then you can't. Then you'll you'll be jumbled by too many problems. Or if you're uh, under challenge, it's just like, well, this is too easy for me. I'm not really exploring all that I could. Yeah. So I mean, the the, the easy way to look at it is like you know, let's say you're good at let's say you're pretty good at basketball. Mm -hmm. But if I put you in like a one-on-one, -on -one, I don't know why I chose basketball. I've never, I, I have no sports experience. Yeah. But, um, but you know, if you're if you're a guy who like plays basketball a lot, like you're not a pro, but like you know, maybe you're someone like Casey Fay who has like a weekend team he plays with in Burbank yeah. or something. You know, like Shout out Casey, Casey. <laughs> um, uh, you know, like, and all of a sudden someone puts you in a one-on-one -on -one game against LeBron James, like, yeah. You might have fun, but it's probably going to be so challenging that it's more frustrating than anything else. Right. And from LeBron James's perspective, like again, he might have fun, but it's probably going to be more boring than anything else. Just the level of the of the problem in front of you is not is not matched well with your level of ability. Right. Um, and so it's all about just trying to find that better match. Like right. I, I came across the term flow reading a book called The Art of Falling, or no, 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 it was just called Falling mm -hmm. uh, by Garrett Soden, uh, and it was all about. Um, Gravity games, uh, gravity sports, things like bungee jumping, skydiving, skateboarding, you know, like uh, rock climbing, like all this sort of stuff where like the point is to see how much you can control or either evade gravity. Right. Surfing was in there too. So, you know, it's, it's a great, fantastic book. But he talks about flow in terms of mountain climbers and other people who do these things that really overwhelm them. And they enter sort of this like zen-like state where just everything's in front of them and they can only – like mountain climbers talk about this a lot where like – 
They just have to look for that one next handhold. And yeah. then once they've got that, then they worry about the handhold after that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so moment to moment. And it's just the times I've gotten into it, either like doing improv or playing Tetris, you know, or, or, or whatever else, it's very blissful and very peaceful. And it makes yeah. things a lot easier. Well, so I feel like an improv, if you're, if you're trying to talk about this concept of flow, which uh, is, is interesting, uh, I feel like at a certain point, it's it's uh, if you're trying if you're trying to make I guess these these two the challenge and your ability equal out. Uh, I mean, really, aren't aren't you always doing that in a way? Like, is it's I feel like it's hard to. I feel yeah I feel like you're very like for me like I'll, I'll be in a scene or whatever and if something's particularly challenging I will like if a conversation I'm trying to understand it I will neglect my object work for. However long it takes for me to get back on board, and as soon as I can get back on board with that, it's like okay, I'll go back to my object work. Or I'm very quick to lose accents because I can't really like oh. focus on my accent yeah. long enough. I'm the king of the wandering and dropping accents. Uh, you know what? I don't think that's true. You are you are good. You're a good character guy, and I think probably out of every and who cares? But this isn't anything on the convoy. You're the character guy. If I if I had to point one out, you're the I think guy. they'd also say that. But like, uh, so I mean, yeah, like, aren't you? I feel like you're always working at max capacity. In a way, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that I am, but I mean, I, I definitely have off nights and off scenes, so that's clearly not true, right. you know? And I think that, you know, getting to that point is just, you have to be really honest with yourself to say either, you know, I think a lot of it, it let me say this, let me back up a second. I think I'm very lucky to be surrounded by Fernie and Todd because they're yeah. players who really challenge me, you know? Yeah, and sure. I think that when people are not reaching that state of flow, it's either that they're playing with people who, you know, and this is something I see a lot in practice groups that I coach, um, and you know, as they they form splinters off of class groups. You know, when people put a band together, Amy Paul has this great thing about like when people put a band together, nobody lets a shitty bassist stay in the band because they're good friends with him. But like, I think a lot of people when a lot of times when people put indie teams together and stuff, they'll keep people on that team who like they really like and really like hanging out with, but probably aren't the best improvisers. Yeah. You know, and it's a it's a fine line to draw uh, because no one wants to be like, "Hey, man, up yours off my improv team," because like that makes it seem weirdly over important. Right. But you know, I think that uh, I've been very lucky to be surrounded by uh, improvisers who are at my level, um, both when I was younger and and not as experienced, and currently now that I'm more experienced. Yeah. And I think that creates that constant challenge that's very uniquely suited to where I am. And the couple of times when I get to improvise with people like, you know, like Billy Merritt or, or something like that, and I, I feel like I am improvising with people beyond my level, I feel like they've done a good job of, you know, not not just leaving me in the dust because yeah. no, no good improviser does that. But um, And so it's enabled me to sort of bootstrap my way up like just a little bit more here and there, and hopefully I'll continue that bootstrapping forever. Nice. You know? Um, all right, so let's uh, let's let's head. A, uh, did you, I heard you improvise with a dog. Your dog? Is uh, that true? What happened? Uh, so <laughs> my dog ran up on stage during a convoy. No, during a sentimental lady show yeah. last week. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely do bits. With, here's the thing: is I do bits with my dog all the time, and it's not like I think it's just because my my natural way of interacting with the world is bits. So it's like, well, the dog's here. I'll do bits with the dog. But yeah, sure. she she ran up on stage during a sentimental lady show last week. She slipped her leash in the lobby and then made it through the lobby door. And so, like, halfway through our montage, just she ran across the front of the stage, chased by a flock of interns. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then ran up on stage and, you know, just rolled. I just picked her up. and But we used it in the scene. You know, yeah. like, we, she, we had been doing something with the UN and then 
once I picked her up, I became like the Hungarian ambassador who thought it was good luck to bring dogs to meetings. And, sure. You know, then you, you know, that you play that out and yeah. So I guess technically that counts as improv with, with, with her, but uh, so, yeah, somebody just posted, I was, I was doing this interview and somebody posted about that and I was like, are you serious? Like I wouldn't even know what happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And I definitely have like running bits I do with her. Like she's really fond of if she thinks that I'm about to go somewhere and then I wind up not going, like if I say we're going to go for a walk. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I, she, she thinks that I've said that in, in the way that the dogs read language and stuff. Right. Uh, she will, uh, dominance hump my leg in an effort to like, sort of be like, Hey, come on, like, let's go. And there's a bit that has evolved out of that, that I do mostly now just to gross out Eugene Cordero. Mm-hmm. I should be very clear before I say this, this bit is only done in the presence of others. This is not a bit I would ever do at home by myself. Sure. But anytime Tess starts humping my leg, I just start going like, yeah, let me fuck your face. I'm going to fuck your face. You know, like, and it's just, I guess that counts as improv because she plays into it by like being super happy about it and not, not making me feel like super gross and, and weird. Uh, <laughs> You know, and then there's the the broader bit of that, which is like the audience part, where like Eugene Cordero will get so grossed out he has to look away. You know, like and that's that's very fun. And so I think the two of us have a a long future as a comedy duo, building off of our success with that routine. Oh, love it. Yes, so does she. It's weird. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I guess uh, I'm trying to think if I have anything else very specific I want to talk about. Uh, real quick, why why do you call suggestions inputs? Is there a logic I, behind it? I don't just... know that. I mean, that's that's something that's been going on for years. I don't know why I started doing that. I I, I think I just. Uh, I mean, I do kind of look at it as like sort of a mechanistic process where like there's certain rules you follow, and one of those rules, you know, like you go A to C, and then yes and you know, like in in that way, you can sort of look at a scene as a. Well, you put an input in at the beginning of it, and then you know you have the A to C, and then you have the yes ending, and then once you get the ga- the unusual thing, you have if this, then what, and then you have exploration. You know, like there is a certain stepwise process by which it makes a lot of sense to me to look at it in terms of, you know, the suggestions and input and the scenes and output. But also, I think it's just like that's what it is to me. It's the, it's it is an input. Like you're giving me like that's your input. You have a chance to give me a little bit of input right now at the top yeah. of the show or whatever. Like. That's what you chose. And like suggestion, I think does the same thing, but input for me feels much more. I don't know. It makes it makes more sense in my brain for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah well, it's it, it's kind of interesting. Especially, well, just randomly for considering Convoy. Uh, yeah, you guys don't you don't do much off of the suggestion or whatever. There's like when I took uh, four one with Billy Merritt, he was very much talking about. He very much glorified this idea of. Uh, like if you if you get the suggestion of pineapple, you need to do the pineapple herald. Like really honor the suggestion or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you guys don't do that at all. No, I mean you know we obviously build it, use it in the first scene to build that scene, and then every scene builds the scene that comes comes after it. Um, but you know, I think that I think that for me, my favorite improv shows are ones that are really fluid. Yeah. You know, uh, like I think if you look at Harold Knight, you know. On any given night, the best show is probably going to be one where they had a ton of options available to them in the scene. And not options that they just shoehorned in there, but options that came up organically. Right. Um, And they're able to take the path of least resistance. I think that, you know, while there certainly is an approach about, like, do the Pineapple Herald. Or, like, I remember, uh, like, there was this this anecdote that was floating around I.O. when I was taking classes there about some group that had gotten the input... Uh, backwards or something like that palindrome. for their input palindrome is that what it is and they yeah. had like wound up at the opening at the end of the show I'm yeah. like 
I think that's really great. I think the times that you can pull that off, that's fantastic. Yeah. However, I also think that if you're shooting for that big picture sort of sort of thematic unity to the show, you're missing out on the moments that are most important. And if you focus on those moments of just like, well, fuck, what does pineapple mean? And like, how can we branch out from there? Like, you're going to wind up with these themes in your show organically. Like, you know, for me, like pineapple connotes a lot of themes of like relaxation and like the tropics, you know, in Hawaii and stuff like that. And if that stuff comes out during the course of an opening or informs, like, you know, a couple of scenes and then those scenes have second beats that play around with those same ideas and stuff like that, yeah. then I think that is that is the theme. Um, but, yeah, I don't – I don't nothing against Billy, obviously. I mean, except <laughs> uh, except his personality and yeah. moral position. But, um, and football teams and all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, Billy's a college football guy, so I got no beef with him on anything. He's a Florida fan, so I feel pity for him, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just think it's very tough to approach it from that top-down perspective. I think you really need to have a more bottom-up approach. You know, it's like in, in yeah. robotics, for instance, there's all these different um, uh, people who are trying to work on problems of, you know, say, bipedal motion and stuff like that. And there were a lot of people who were trying to say, like, well, how can we, um, you know, program a robot so that it takes two steps perfectly every time? And then there were other people who were like, well, but... You know, like things that walk and crawl don't do it perfectly every time. You know, you look at ants scrambling. This is a Rodney Brooks anecdote that I'm mangling right now. But um, you look at ants and, like, they scramble and fall all over each other. So maybe if we just put something into the robot that makes it move its legs in a certain way and we, you know, don't even give it the goal of walking, just tell it you're able to move your legs and you happen to, like, bright spaces more than dark spaces or vice versa, then when it moves its legs and starts trying to have a preferential you know, preferentially uh, uh, geared towards bright spaces, then it's going to exhibit this goal-directed behavior where it walks towards bright spaces and all of a sudden you've gotten a goal without programming one explicitly into the machine. I think in improv you want to teach those fundamental skills of how do you do this stuff and then know that these bigger idea things are the stuff to shoot for and see if we kind of get there more organically, Right. if that makes any sense It's sort of, yeah, it's sort of saying that you're taking the focus off of, it's, it's it's taking the focus off of, the macro and saying like, okay, well, this is, this is, this is the, the base parts of it. And if you can, if these base parts can somehow link together, you need to find a way to do that. But these base parts are the most important part. Like you're saying, like scrambling, you, your legs can move or whatever, focus on that. And then hopefully that will evolve into walking, running and yeah. winning the Olympics. There's the, so <laughs> this, is. this movie, I've, yeah. When, and if you can win the Olympics by doing improv, more power to you. Yeah. I've seen some great space work javelin throws out of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this movie that I'm stealing the the Rodney Brooks thing from is uh, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and I'm just it's an Errol Morris documentary that I'm so obsessed with. I I, re- I recommend it to a lot of my students uh, who are having a hard time with third beats and heralds because it's just it's 90 minutes of nothing but third beat connections. But um, you know, yeah, it's just that same thing of like you know Rodney Brooks gives another anecdote. The title of the movie Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control comes from a paper he submitted to NASA for a proposal for uh, robotic lunar exploration, where Mm -hmm. rather than sending one big rover or something like that, he wanted to send a swarm of small robots, uh, each of which just had a simple mirror or a simple reflector on it or something like that. And they would have sensors that would tell them, say, soil salinity or something like that. And you would set them loose on the surface of the moon, and you would tell them, okay, I want you to go to... You know, uh, I want you guys all to be five meters apart at all times, and I want each of you to be either on your local minimum or maximum of soil salinity, and then, you know, put your mirror up. Mm-hmm. And then from the Earth, you could see this mirror array that would effectively be a salinity map when mapping salinity is not programmed into any individual robot. They just have these 
yeah. certain rules of stay this far away from the other guys, put your mirror up when you find this amount of salt, you know? Just and, doing your part. Yeah, and there's this emergent property to it that I think is really interesting and I think is really relevant in terms of talking about, you know, improv and yeah. stuff like that. I I started I, uh, part of this this thing I do is writing blogs about uh, improv stuff, and I, I tried to really put into words uh, this idea of emergence and, and whatever into how that really explains a lot of improv and can lead to good improv if you, you know, again, focusing on the individual, the individual thing that you bring into it or whatever. But that was, God, that's a hard, it's a hard nut to crack. It's a tough thing. I had a, a, a professor in college um, in a cognitive science course I was taking where this emergent properties would come up all the time yeah. um, because people would talk about like, well, you know, we can break the brain down to all these different functions that are basically just input, complex input and output systems for vision, hearing, sight, you know, vision and sight are the same thing. But, yeah. uh, you know, and then consciousness is an emergent property that happens when all of these things come together and you need some higher order power to make decisions between, you know, conflicting inputs or whatever. Right. And my, my professor, uh, Professor Livingston, would always say that, you know, calling something an emergent property is just a fancy way of saying we don't understand how it happens yet. You know, he was such a reductionist that he really did believe, and I think has a very good point of like, yeah, these things are emergent, but like all the steps that lead up to them are kind of mechanistic. We should be able to figure out how does a good herald become a good herald. Right. And, and going back to the UCB textbook, I think that's something that that book does really well, that, that those guys in Wengert have done a good job of um, of saying is, is just analyzing scenes and saying like, this is how something goes from just being a, a quick yes and choice that you make in panic fire. to being folded into a larger pattern to being folded into the larger pattern of the form, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how to break it down either. I just know <laughs> that it, it should be possible. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing I had a conversation not too long ago about UCB. Uh, and they said like, well, what's, what's the difference or like, what's so great about it? And I, I, I feel like honestly, UCB does give, a really smart way, almost like a formula, like a basic, a basic, like if you can do this, you will be funny. It won't be the most creative funny and it won't be the best in the world or whatever. But if you can do these little steps of like understanding the weird thing and exploring whatever, you can be funny. Uh, and I, and I don't feel like any other school has that. And, uh, and that's why I really like it. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, the, the big thing about UCB as a training center is they've spent so much time developing their curriculum. Um, yeah. It's, and, it's, as a, as a result of that, they've managed to apply for and become accredited by the National Association of Schools of Theater. Which, when am I going to get my certificate? Because I said for, I, forever ago, <laughs> I heard I was going to get my certificate I have for no sketch idea. and improv. And I have my college degree here just to appease my parents. And I don't want that. I want my UCB certificate printed out. Yeah, I don't know. I guess email the theater. I forgot that we're giving out certificates now. It's been so long since I've gotten yeah, any kind of recognition. That. Um, but yeah, but they, they, and they really does, they have these, these simple rules to follow and they've done a good job of atomizing it and breaking it down. And, you know, like, uh, I, I think it's on the, the worksheet that gets handed out in level one of like Ian Roberts's seamwork notes, but it's, you know, the basic thing of like, well, you know, if you, if you follow these rules, most of the time you'll have a successful scene, not always. And sometimes when you break these rules, you'll have a much better scene, but at its core, like statistically speaking, those rules are a pretty good way to turn a single input into a decent comedy scene. Yeah. Uh, all right. I guess we're getting slow. coming out to the end here. I guess I want to just ask real quick, uh, penis dragons or vagina dragons, which one's crazier? Cause I, uh, if neither. I can... Neither of penis dragons. I, I think I think vagina dragons are crazier. I here's okay. 
Well, here's so should I explain, explain the context? It, <laughs> so okay, so I have a thing in that I, I I try to break game down into its constituent parts uh, just to wrap my head around it. And for me, a game is you have it's it's not just the unusual thing; it's the coupling of an unusual thing with a clear emotional reaction. Right. And then for the rest of the scene, once you find that, the way you progress is you explore that uh, unusual thing in order to get more detail on it mm-hmm. uh, with the purpose of turning it into a more effective, uh, a, a, a better effector of whatever emotional response you're getting. So if we're playing a game and, uh, uh, you know, we're saying like, well, every time I fart, you get upset, then I want to structure my farts such that they make you more and more upset. Am right. I... Do they smell like eggs? Am I sharding? You know, like, are we, you know, what's the context of these, of these farts that could make you more upset? You know, and that's all going if this, then what? But really the thing that's heightening is not the unusual thing. That's getting more detailed and more specific. What's heightening is your emotional response. You're getting more and more and more upset. And so the penis dragon, vagina dragon thing for me is, well, you can't just have it be wacky farts because at a certain point, no one can say whether a fart in a car is wackier than a fart in an elevator or something like that. Uh, but you can say, well, one makes me more upset than the other, right. or they make me equally upset. And so the penis dragon, vagina dragon thing is, and I, I challenge almost all of my classes to this, but nobody can tell me objectively whether a dragon that breathes penises instead of fire is more or less unusual than a dragon that breathes vaginas instead of fire. Mm-hmm. And every time I think I have an answer to it, I like something in my brain goes like, but I don't know. But just like, where does the you know, like what what do you call the end of the penis? What do you call the boundary of the vagina? You know, like what when we say that they breathe that instead of fire, is that like one giant penis instead of a burst of fire, or one giant vagina, or is it like a swarm of vaginas yeah. and a bunch of just like penis heads or something like that? You know, I mean, there's no the only way you could truly know which one of those dragons was more unusual is if you had a cognitive agent such as a knight or some kind of dragon researcher or something there who responded more to one dragon than they did to the other dragon. Right. And in that way, you'd be able to say, like, well, that dragon caused more of a startle response. They must be less used to or more surprised by that dragon. Therefore, it must be more unusual, you know? Yeah. Or they responded the exact same. In this world, both these dragons must be the exact same level of unusual. But I, I think at a certain time, the unusual thing reaches a saturation point where, not that it can't get more unusual, but that whether or not it is more unusual becomes a very subjective uh subjective evaluation but if you're responding emotionally you can say well he definitely got more upset you know having to fight the penis dragon than he did the vagina dragon the penis dragon must be more unusual than the vagina dragon now we have enough information to to construct a trajectory for the scene right well uh listeners if anybody out there runs into a penis dragon or vagina dragon just tell us which one's more unusual also we could stop this run the fuck away i think either one would be an unpleasant creature to have to fight neither of them are great you're either gonna get showered in penises or showered in vaginas and no matter how much you love either one of those things mm-hmm. i guarantee if you're being showered in it in a in an attacking way in an aggressive adversarial way by a dragon that is able to create these things out of their throats again yeah. i don't know how that happens that's a whole nother angle to it because like <laughs> sure maybe coming out vaginas seem weirder but the thought of a dragon that has like an area in its body 
where it has to bud and grow penises before they can come loose into the world is more weird to me than an area where like vaginas open up in its body somewhere, you know, like, so I don't, there's, there's too many, there's too many angles from which I thought I had the answer and you're really, you never will, man. You'll go to your grave, not Not knowing the answer to that question. Um, all right. Well, I guess uh, since it's close to the end, I just want to ask uh, the last question. I always ask, "What's uh, what's a note that you maybe got in the, your improv career?" Oh wait, you didn't have, you didn't do coaches, but you did teachers. Oh, I, I hope teachers. That, I, I hope I, I hope this one applies. But is there, is there a note that you ever got that was really super influential or really kind of changed your perspective on it? What was that note? And, yeah, uh, absolutely. In my uh, two hundred one class at UCB, uh, I took it with Seth Morris who uh, I think is a phenomenal improviser, really great, yeah. really great. Um, but uh, he said to the class, and I can't even remember what it was in response to, but just uh, to be a good improviser, you have to be a good observer of life. And I think that that has probably been the most influential note I've ever gotten. Because I already kind of liked people watching. But then after I got that note, it was like, no, I'm not people watching. I'm building up a catalog of human behavior that I can dip into anytime yeah. I want. You know, like I'm not... When I walk into a room, like I've I've gotten to a point now where I just I notice little details about everything. Like you know, I notice like that you have like the puffy pirate shirt Seinfeld like collector's edition and two Ace Ventura DVDs and a Brian Green book. You know, like I'm just picking up on all these little you do Fabric of the Cosmos. Yeah, I know. It's the I second just, book there. I, wow, it's not prominently displayed, but it just stood out to me. You know, like um, you know, and it's just that thing of when you build up these details and then are able to filter them through well. What was that room like? Now, all of a sudden, they're available to you to pull out in scenes later on. And I just – I think that that idea of just continually observing the world around you and stowing as much of it away as possible is is, is huge, huge for me. I mean, just huge. Everywhere I go, I just observe everything. Like, it's really, really fun. I like it. Uh, yeah, Billy Merritt was always big on that except for – I think it was story. He was like, it was like you got to consume – uh, an hour or two of good story every day. Mm. Uh, so same, same idea, but a little different. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I guess that's it. Do you want to, do you have anything that you want to plug, share, tell about real quick on the way, the way out? Uh, can I plug, plug Cleverbot? Is that yeah. too lame to plug? Do it. I love, ah, I, uh, I was going to talk, but who cares? Uh, okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll plug it real quick. So, uh, I've started an improv Tumblr called Berg and And I'll link to that for you. Um, and yeah, and it's literally just me doing uh, two-man scenes with Cleverbot, which is uh, an artificial intelligence uh, chatbot yeah. that has recently uh, caused some some uh, some excitement in the AI community because it scored a 63% human rating at a recent Turing test competition in India. Did that one. Although it's not... I've never once talked to it, like, even when I'm not doing scenes. I've never had a conversation with it that makes me go, like, oh, yeah, you might be human. It's yeah, always no, very it's clearly a robot. But I also do kind of like that, you know, part of the way that the, the chatbot works is that it stores up everything anyone has ever said to it and then regurgitates it when it thinks it's most appropriate. So it's sort of crowdsourcing a personality for right. the Internet. And I like to think of myself as the guy who's trying to teach it a broader swath of, of conversational things by a putting it in situations where like, you know, I'm making it into some weird guy or something like that. Yeah. But also just by trying to teach it humor, you know, <laughs> you're, like, doing, you're doing it a service. I like that. That's yeah. In your head yeah. Cause well, cause I got, I got very legitimately worried about it because I really liked the project and I, I would feel so bad if the guys who run it were to email me and be like, Hey, you're fucking throwing a monkey wrench in the works. Cause like, I think from a certain perspective, that's very valid to say, yeah. but I really do think of it as like, 
no, man, I'm, I'm trying to make your program more robust and more human by giving it a sense of humor. Like that's the number one stereotype of robots is that they're humorless, cold machines. And I'm trying, I'm trying to go against that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for robot rights. I like it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we were talking about earlier. It's just that when you're improvising with somebody or the idea of that, uh, everybody tries or talks about this. If you make your partner look good, your partner's always right. That whatever you're saying is always right. Uh, and that you, you, I've read scenes from them. They're very funny. Uh, and you're very good at just going exactly like, yeah, you're fucking right. Whatever you said, weird thing, clever, but like it talked about uh, a painting of some cartoon character just recently. Oh, Zoidberg. Zoidberg. And you're like, I should have known that is not your dog. Yeah. And instead of, yeah. Instead of, you know, throwing it away. You're... Yeah. It's just, it's just a fun exercise to take something that should be completely non sequitur and fold reality around it to, to make it make sense. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I enjoy that. Um, all right, that's that's all you got? Plugs? Uh, yeah, I mean, come see Convoy and Sentimental Lady and <laughs> uh, you know whatever Linseed Chandelier's new team name will be. Um, and uh, yeah, go see, go see shows. Like I tell my classes, just go see, go shows, see shows. Go see shows. All right. Well, uh, Alex Berg, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change that. <laughs> Oh, there we go. We did it. Two episodes, guys. I'm um, so excited. Uh, Alex Berg was just a really cool guy, fun to talk to. Check out his stuff. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, hey, did you dig that opening theme song? That's by Crystal Friedman. She's really cool. Check out her and all of her stuff. Um, don't check her out. Don't don't objectify women. That's not cool. Oh, they're emptying the trash outside my building. Uh, anyway, you guys know the deal. Can you rate... Please subscribe, please like it, share it with your friends, uh, do all that stuff. I'd really appreciate it. Oh man, that is annoying. Should I change this? Eh, whatever. Uh, I just figured out that this podcast is going to cost, cost me a few bucks a year to do, so uh, with those few bucks, I just want everyone to hear it. Uh, anyway, I guess that's it. Uh, be good. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. everybody. Do you like getting stoned and watching a movie? Or just watching a movie? Well then check out our podcast, IMD Weed, Weed, where we and a guest go to the movies and discuss it after. A movie review podcast with a little token twist, get it? Oh boy, but hey, you don't have to smoke weed to enjoy this podcast. Uh, you should enjoy watching movies though. Subscribe to IMD Weed on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.